really is a privilege to be able to have the Word of God and be able to study it. Um, so we'll actually be turning to a couple passages tonight. Last week we had everything up on the screen, but this week we'll definitely be in the Bible a little bit um, and reading some, um, but we'll pick up with that here in a little bit. Um, before we get into it, so tonight's night two of the Doctrine of Repentance. And like I said last week, if you weren't here, we're, we're doing like a biblical theological approach. Um, so we're trying to cover like how does the old, whole Old Testament deal with the doctrine of repentance. And then we'll do the same thing for the New Testament in a couple weeks. Uh, so we started last week with looking at uh, just four different Hebrew words. That's pretty much all we did last week. Um, we started with that first word, nakam. And we talked about how that word is the word that's used um, with God as the subject, God being the one that either repents, or changes, or grieves, or expresses sorrow. Uh, and when we looked at that, we talked about, you know, God never changes His character, God never changes His mind, but He does change His actions towards man at certain times, and He does change His emotion. You know, he, He's moved into grief because of sin. So the important thing was God never changes his mind, but he can change his action and his emotion. And so it's, it's good to have that in mind as we move through tonight because we're, we're really going to spend a lot of time talking about the elements of repentance and some of those fall into the category of change of heart or the interchange, change of mind, and then other ones are going to be change of action and other ones are going to be change of emotion. So it's good to keep that in mind. Uh, we looked at shuv. Um, that's the most common word for repentance in the Old Testament. We talk about how that's uh, literally like it was used as a physical change of direction. You know, you're going one direction, and then you turn around like Hagar was going away from Sarah. And an angel came to her and said, go back, turn back the other way. So it's a directional change. And then uh, it's used in moral contexts to say, your heart's going one way, your affections are going one way, your mind is set in one direction, but then God is going to change that and transform that and turn it into a whole new direction towards himself. He's going to incline it towards himself. Um, then we looked at this word, sure, and that word um, is more about the removal, um, the departure, the removal of sin and iniquity from one's life. And when it's used in a repentance context, most of the time it's used to talk about... Um, the action, the visible action that comes with the internal th part of repentance. So you've got a change of heart. Your heart is redirected towards God. And then that's expressed by actions, um, specifically the removal of sin or the removal of idols, the removal of iniquity. And that's the word that's often used for that. And then the last word we looked at was leb or labab. And that word is the Hebrew word for heart. Um, and the reason we looked at that was because the heart is often the thing that is directed towards God or changes. Um, the Old Testament repeatedly says, um, turn to God with all your heart. Uh, so that's the thing, the object, that is changed and transformed in repentance. And so we spent some time talking about that because the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew idea of the heart is different than our idea of the heart. Um, we, we think of, like if we were to say, oh, he's making decisions with his heart, we would think he's making emotion-based decisions. He's not thinking clearly or logically. But in Hebrew, the heart was actually the center of your reasoning, the center of your, your cognition. Um, your decision-making was from the heart. Um, so very much so when they said heart, they would include what we would today uh, say mine to describe. Um, this is a verse that I didn't include last week, but I thought it was really neat. Um, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. So the thing you see with is your eyes, the thing you hear with is your ears, and the instrument that you understand with is your heart. Um, so just keep that in mind as we move through this. That's going to be really helpful. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages that 
deal with the heart because that's the foundation of repentance in the Old Testament. Uh, so just, just bear that in mind as we move through this. Um, this was the verse that we ended on last week, and I wanted to just state it again because it's, it's a really great verse that summarizes all that vocabulary um, and really sets the stage in a lot of ways for Old Testament repentance. This is Samuel um, talking to the nation of Israel. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So there we see the internal uh, change, the internal repentance of the heart being the subject to the Lord. Um, and that comes with or results in the action of putting away foreign gods, um, directing the heart to the Lord, serving Him only, another act of obedience. So you're putting away the foreign gods, you're serving God, and out of that comes deliverance. So that very much so is a good summary of, of Old Testament repentance and a good place to start and refresh ourselves on that vocabulary before we get into tonight. So I'm very much so like graphical flowchart thinker. And so this was a great way for me to kind of segregate things in my mind and understand um, what all is going on with repentance in the Old Testament. Uh, but like I said, the heart and the essence of repentance in the, whole, in the Old Testament is the inward change of the heart. That's the foundational essence of repentance. You're going to see that in all the passages that deal with repentance. It's always the change of the heart, this inward change of mind. And like I said, when, I, when we're talking about change of heart in the Old Testament, it's really synonymous with a change of mind. So that is the foundation of repentance. And flowing from that is a change in action. A change of action, you can't really ever divorce that from the change of heart. But it's important that we keep those separate because you can be in a state of forcing yourself to change action of your own, on your own. You know, I was thinking this week, and we're going to talk about this a little more, but you can cause yourself to stop sinning to some extent. Even, even unbelievers have enough grace from God to see the error of some sin and how destructive it is. And so I, everybody who's successfully gone through an AA program has successfully ceased sin to some degree. They've stopped a certain sin in their life. But that's not true repentance if they don't ever do it with any regard to the God of the Bible. So as we're moving through this, we're going to talk a lot about change of action as something that goes with repentance, but it is something that's distinct from repentance. You can't ever divorce them, can't separate them. They're always going to be together, but it's distinct from it at the same time. Um, and those change of actions can be things directed towards God, such as prayer and confession, admission of your guilt before God, declaring that God is righteous to judge, righteous in His judgments against you. We're going to walk through all these things and look at passages. Um, or they can be more externally visible actions, like you can stop sinning in a certain sin, or you can, for the Old Testament, it, it looked like putting away idols and putting away iniquity and following God and serving God, walking in obedience to the law of God. So all those things are actions, change of actions that flow from the change of heart, the inward change. Um, and then, of course, there's always change of emotion that goes with this, too. Um, and I think the most specific one we see in the Old Testament is you move from being unashamed of your sin to being broken over your sin and having a heart of contrition over your sin. Um, so that's an emotional change that you, you undergo in the process of repentance remorse over sin. So that's where we're going to be tonight, and we're just going to kind of walk through and look at passages that kind of flesh out all those different elements of repentance. So last week was just a vocabulary. This week we're kind of fleshing out all the little elements that build up this idea of repentance in the Old Testament. Um, first and foundational is that inward change. It's a holistic interchange that's described in the Old Testament as a change of heart. Um, we see this in Deuteronomy um, 30, verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, um, this, is, this is after 
after Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel right on the, the border of the promised land, he's not going to cross into it. So these are some of his final words to the nation. He lays out all the blessings and curses that will come upon them if they're either faithful or unfaithful to the covenant. He says, all these, this blessing, this curse, which I've set before you, will come upon you. And, you call, and you, when you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So again, this is, this is an all your heart type of repentance. It's a, it's a turning of the whole heart towards God. Um, and that's what you're going to see time and time again throughout the whole Old Testament. And it's interesting, you know, Again, you can never divorce this from oh, whoops, obedience to God. Um, obey His voice. So that, that turning, that inward turn, is always going to express itself in an external act of obedience, um, a lifestyle of obedience that flows after that. Um, same chapter, a little bit later. It says, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your father's when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So it's the complete inward change of the heart towards God. That's the foundational aspect of repentance. Um, Jeremiah is filled with that language. Um, here's some verses. Um, Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart but in pretense, declares the Lord. That one's remarkable because Judah is witnessing Israel, has witnessed Israel being taken captive by the Assyrians for all their idolatry, all their wickedness. They are on the front row seat of seeing God's judgment poured out on a nation that is not repentant, and yet they still harden their heart, and they only return to God in pretense, not with their whole heart. And as a result, they too are swept away by Babylonians not too long after that. Um, later in the same book, <clears throat> Jeremiah, or this is, uh, this is God speaking, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. If you notice there, God's the one giving the new heart, and we're really going to hit home on that next week. Um, but you're going to see that crop up several times even tonight in the passages we're looking at. But this whole inward transformation of the heart and redirection of the heart towards God is something that God himself works in humans, but it's still something that we're responsible for. We're going to look at that a lot next week. Jeremiah 29:13. When you search for me, then you will find me if you seek me with all your heart, uh, which is a great promise um, from God or when we do turn to him with our whole heart. Um, another critical aspect of this inward transformation that comes with repentance is that it's relational. Um, this is something that I personally struggle with getting my mind wrapped around a lot of times because we talk so much about the holiness of God and how he's so transcendent and holy that it's hard for me to understand how he desires love from me and from his people and how he is delighted when we do love him. Um, but that's what we see in these passages. Deuteronomy 30 again, it says in verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, he's the one that will do it, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So God is the one that's bringing about this inward heart change. He's the one circumcising the heart. And the purpose of that is so that we will love the Lord our God with all our heart. So that, that's, that's the purpose in a lot of ways of this whole repentance in the Old Testament. Um, this quote I put up here, at the core of the Old Testament theology of repentance is the relational dimension. The change in relationship is often explicitly expressed as a shift from a foreign god or gods to Yahweh. So we see this throughout the whole Old Testament and the repentance of it is that God desires our hearts to be turned towards him in love. It's a relational change in our hearts. So it's a whole change of, of the way we think, the way we 
we understand, the way we believe, and the way we relate to God and the way that we love God. Um, this, this is uh, the verse that we looked at just a second ago from Deuteronomy 30. Um, it says, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, skipping down to the bottom, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we see there God taking delight in his people, repenting and turning to him. And then Hosea 6, 6, For I, God speaking, desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not tricked by false repentance. God is not tricked by religious ritualism or doing external actions when your heart is not directed towards God. What God desires isn't superficial actions when your heart is far from God. Rather, God desires your heart to be turned towards Him in love. So repentance in the Old Testament is relational. Repentance also changes your belief and your trust. Um, this is something that I've talked a lot of times with my Sunday school kids. You can never separate um, trust and belief in God with obedience to God. Those things always are going to go hand in hand. If you trust God and you uh, believe in God, it's going to manifest itself in obedience. And it's the same thing in the Old Testament with the idea of repentance. Um, this example here, 2 Kings 17, 13 says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. So, there's this idea of they did not believe in the Lord their God, and they followed in this pattern of refusing to turn from the evil ways and refusing to keep the commandments. So what's going on here? The author's making a, a, a parallel, a comparison here. You've got failure to believe in God, and that's, that's manifest in failure to obey God and failure to keep God's commandments. John does the same thing in the Gospel of John. You'll see him use the word for faith right in line with um, obeying God. And he, he, those, those two ideas are inseparable. And it's the same way here in 2 Kings. Um, those who fail to believe in God also fail to keep God's commands. So when our heart's transformed and we're redirected towards God, we're given a heart that trusts God and will walk in His commands. Similar idea in Isaiah 30, uh, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. This is when Isaiah is going before the king, and the king, uh, they're about to be uh, invaded by a foreign nation, and the king is wanting to go to Egypt for help. And Isaiah says, No, trust God. God will deliver you. And the king says, no, I think I'm going to take matters into my own hands and go to Egypt instead. And Isaiah is saying, look, if you had just returned to God, you would have been saved. And in quietness and trust in God, that would have been your strength. And so, again, there's this whole idea of turning to God, um, coming with trust in God. You really can't ever separate those things. Those things always go hand in hand. Um, so the inward change changes. It's a holistic change, changes your whole heart, um, the whole center of your reasoning, decision-making. Even what Brother Joey was talking about this morning in Romans 4, uh, I think it was verse 3, talking about what does the Scripture say. When we're transformed by the Spirit of God and our, we're given new hearts directed towards Him, we channel everything through the Word of God, all our decisions, all the way we think, the way we perceive, the way we believe, all those things um, go through and are channeled through the Word of God um, after we have a transformation of heart. Uh, so all those things, the belief, uh, the relational aspect of it, the change of mind and belief, uh, all that is the inward change of repentance, and that's the essence and the foundation of repentance. Uh, but repentance doesn't end with those inward things. Um, 
that it, it also changes your emotions and it changes your actions. So we're going to look at how repentance changes your emotion. Uh, the most obvious way in the Old Testament, the most, most frequent expression of that is in weeping and contrition. So 2 Kings 22.18 says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place. So this is when Josiah repents. Josiah, um, he's, he's one of my favorite kings, but he assumed the throne when he's eight, and already from a young age, he does not follow in the pattern that he was given by his father. He doesn't walk in the wickedness of his father. Instead, he follows God from a young age as he's leading the nation. And yet, one day, the high priest happens to find the book of the law as if it was just tucked away in the back of the temple or something. He finds the book of the law, which is probably the book of Deuteronomy. He finds the book of the law, and he goes and he reads it, and he brings it before Josiah the king. He says, man, you've got to look at this. This is, we found something important. You need to hear this. So he reads it to Josiah, and Josiah, even though Josiah was already a good king, is absolutely distraught when he hears the words of the book of the law, and he rips his clothes, and he weeps, and he uh, expresses his heart was penitent, it says. Uh, and he serves as a model of repentance in the Old Testament. When he hears the words of the book of the law, he repents and leads the nation in a kind of repentance that, that the nation never experienced before then or after then. He totally did away with all the idols, all the false prophets, everything. Just complete removal and purging of that from the whole land. Um, so an excellent example of repentance. And significantly, the, the, the points that God, when he's talking to Josiah, Josiah, he says, Josiah, because you've repented, I will let you go to your grave in peace, even though the nation will still fall because of their sin. He allows Josiah to go to, the, go to his grave before that happens, because he repented. And the aspects of repentance that are pointed out by God there is the penitential heart, penitent, yeah, penitential heart and the weeping before God. So those are critical aspects of repentance. And same thing in Psalm 51. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I'm thankful that Tyler led us through that psalm not long ago. It's a perfect way to segue into this. But that chapter is an excellent chapter of repentance. Um, and so many of the elements that we're talking about tonight, you can see that in that psalm if you read through it. And this especially, broken and contrite heart. When we are given a heart directed towards God, it's going to express itself in brokenness over sin. Similar idea with shame. Um, Jeremiah really writes a lot about this, the shame of sin. 325 says, Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Jeremiah is so appalled by the sin of the nation and the people around him that he says, we can't even stand before God right now. Let's just lay down and accept this shame that we've incurred upon ourselves. Um, there's the, the repentant heart before God has no room for pride. When we're given a new heart that's repentant and turned towards God, it's humble and it's broken over sin. And it accepts the shame of sin. It's ashamed of sin. Later on, same book. This is God speaking now. It says, um, speaking of the nation of Israel and their sin and their unwillingness to repent, he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punished them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So for the nation of Israel, the consequences of failing to 
be ashamed at all over their sin or recognize any kind of guilt over their sin was grave, to say the least. They incurred upon themselves the judgment and the punishment of God because they failed to acknowledge the shame of their sin. So it's a great blessing when God blesses us with mourning and brokenness and shame and weeping over our sin. That's a great, great place to be if you're in a place where you are so broken over your sin that you cry and you weep over your sin. Uh, It doesn't always happen necessarily, but that's a great place to be, and it's a great grace that God gives when we reach that point of brokenness over our sin. Um, I'm really thankful for what we've been doing or what we did do on Wednesday nights, going through the doctrine of sin, and just a great way to lead into this study because so central to repentance is understanding how awful and heinous our sin is before God. And so um, that's, that's a central aspect of repentance in the Old Testament is the shame of sin. Finally, uh, repentance affects the external behavior. And this is the one that's, I mean, when we think of repentance, a lot of times people would define repentance as, oh, well, that's when you stop sinning. And that always comes with repentance. There is, there is an aspect of you stopping sin to some extent when you repent, but that flows out of the heart that's, that's changed. Your heart's been inclined towards God. It's been, you've been given this shame of sin and this hatred and this brokenness over sin, so naturally you aren't going to be able to keep walking in it. I mean, Lord willing, you get to the point where when you do sin, you experience such brokenness that it... it, it keeps you up at night, it ruins your appetite, all these things causes you to weep and cry out to God, that kind of brokenness over sin is going to cause you to stop walking in sin inevitably. But it's important that we don't define repentance as, oh yeah, that's when you stop sinning. Because if that's how we define repentance, then all of a sudden repentance becomes a work. And if repentance is required for salvation, like we say it is, based on you know even Luke 13, then that becomes a big issue. Now, repentance is the inward change of the heart that manifests itself in changed actions. It always does, though. I mean, you can never separate that. You go to any example of repentance in the Old Testament, you're going to see some kind of change of action that comes with that change of heart. Um, Here's two examples for you. I think we've already read this first verse a couple times now. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. So, turn from evil, keeping God's commands, keeping God's statutes. All those things come with repentance. Nehemiah 1.9, But if you return to me, that's the repentance, that's the inward transformation, and keep my commandments and do them, even though all of your outcasts are at the furthest parts of heaven, I will gather them and bring them to the place which I've chosen to make my name dwell. So again, like I just picked a couple of verses, but it's all over the Old Testament. Um, there's no lack of examples of how repentance always will change your external behavior. It'll change some, some there will be some visible change. You won't just keep on sinning the way you were sinning before. There will be some sort of change. As we move through this, I do want to emphasize though that it's possible to change your actions and it's possible to to cry out to God and even fabricate some degree of sadness in front of others. It's possible to put on a face and to fake repentance and do some of these external things without ever having your heart changed. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. As soon as you start doing the actions and forcing the obedience without any kind of changed heart, all of a sudden you're relying on your works to justify you before God because you're, you're, you're expecting the promises that God makes for a changed heart, but all you're doing is changing your actions. There is no change of heart. Um, you know, any, anybody can really grit their teeth and force themselves to, to stop a certain sin because they don't like the consequences of it. I mean, even unbelievers can do that. Um, the difference is with repentance, it always flows from the heart that's been broken before God first. Uh, repentance changes actions towards God. 
um, specifically in prayer and fasting and things like that. So one thing we see a lot of in the Old Testament is pra- prayer of confession and acknowledgement. Um, Leviticus 26.40, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. So this whole thing starts with them confessing their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. That's, that's a really interesting aspect of repentance in the Old Testament. There's a lot of instances where people will confess not only their own sin, but also the sin of their fathers or the sin of the people around them in Isaiah 6. Um, so that's a, a really interesting aspect of Old Testament repentance. Jeremiah 3.12, um, Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return or repent. Faithless Israel, declares the Lord, I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only, so this is this is the responsibility of man here, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and, and scattered your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So he's calling them as an act of repentance. Part of this act of repentance and returning to God is acknowledging your guilt and confessing that before God. Um, very central to the idea of repentance in the Old Testament. Finally, this idea of submission to divine judgment. Um, Basically, this is an attitude that says, God, I'm broken over my sin. I confess my sin before you. I'm asking for your forgiveness, but oh God, you would be so just to condemn me and to not forgive me. You would be righteous in your judgment against me. So that's so contrary to other examples, we're going to look at a couple examples next week of failure to repent, people who failed to repent, even though they tried to an extent. And this, this attitude of saying, God, you would be just in judging me and condemning me. You would be righteous in doing that. It's so contrary to that attitude. Um, I mean, one attitude says, God, you are righteous to judge me. The other attitude says, look, God, I've obeyed you. I deserve forgiveness. Like, look, God, I've changed my action. I've changed my way. You're obligated now to forgive me. This is the true attitude of repentance that says, God, I'm broken over my sin. All I can hope for is your grace. Please forgive me. But even if you don't, you're righteous in withholding judgment from, or, or withholding grace from me and, and expressing judgment on me. Zechariah 1.6, <clears throat> But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and the prophets, Servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. So when they repented, they basically came to a position where they said, As God has purposed to do with us, he's done it, and we're acceptant of that, whatever that looks like. They accepted God's judgment, and they didn't try to fight it. Like They, they recognized God was righteous to judge. Um, Daniel 9, if y'all want to turn there, um, is another great example of this. I didn't put some of these on the screen because they're kind of big and I didn't want the text to get too small. Daniel 9, this is when Judah is in captivity. And Daniel is effectively, he's acting as a mediator on the behalf of the nation that's in exile. And he's, he's confessing their sin before God and repenting, leading them in repentance. And so in verse 3, we see Daniel, who's a man that we don't really see a lot of unrighteous acts recorded about Daniel in Scripture. He's, he's recorded as a fairly righteous person. And yet he's the one here leading in repentance. Verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, 
O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Skip down to verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. So he's saying, we are ashamed, but God, you are righteous. Um, verse 11 says, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. So he's recognizing their guilt before God. And then verse 14 is where we see him submit to divine judgment. He says, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity or the judgment that he has brought and has brought it upon us. So all the promises of, of exiling them and casting them out of the promised land because of their rebellion, God has done it. He has kept his judgment. He's brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. So he is righteous in doing his judgment against us is what Daniel's saying. And we have not obeyed his voice. So that's the penitential attitude that we see many places in the Old Testament. Like, God, you are so righteous in your judgment against us. We are broken. We are asking forgiveness. But even if not, God, you are righteous um, to judge us. So submission to divine judgment. That's honestly, it, that, that is one of the clearest distinctions to me between the truly penitential heart and the truly broken, repentant heart. And the one that's not, the one that's not is going to say, look, God, I've changed my actions. I've changed my ways. I deserve to be forgiven. Forgive me because I deserve it or thinks that it earns it or obligates God through some way. But the other one, I mean, like Brother Joey said a couple times recently, it's like it's surprised when it experiences grace from God because it understands so much that God is righteous to judge and so much understands the iniquity. Look back at what was that, verse verse 5, I think. He uses four different words to describe their sin. We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, we have rebelled, we've turned aside from the commands and rules. I mean, he is so aware of their iniquity and sin. He can't stand it. And he is so aware of God's righteousness to judge. I mean, Daniel's probably going to be the most surprised person if God decides to show grace. And that's how our hearts and attitudes should be too when we have this repentance in our hearts. It should change us to such an extent that we say, God, I don't even deserve your grace. Certainly you would be just in, in not showing it to me, but God, that's, that's all I have. That's all, that's all I hope. Just please forgive me for my sin. Um, so, oh, I wanted to, what time is it? If we have a couple minutes, I know we're, we're running kind of short, but this idea of Daniel being the mediator um, and leading the nation in repentance is also, if you want to turn to the book of Ezra chapter 9, um, it's also, it, it, it crops up in several places. I, I put down a couple of those places up there if you want to look at them later. Um, but I do want us to look at Ezra chapter 9. I'm going to get a couple of y'all to read some of these verses, but this to me is one of the most powerful, most clear prayers of repentance in the Old Testament. Um, so I think it's worth reading the whole chapter, um, and we'll wrap up pretty quick after this. But um, Jeremy, if you want to read verses 1 through 5, and then Rob, can you read verses... Um, 6 through 10, and then Brother Joey, can you read verses uh, 11 through the end of the chapter?
so that the holy race can intermingle with the people with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I pulled, tore my garment and my robe. I pulled some of the hair from my head and from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Then someone, uh, then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from humiliation. Even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell to my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the land sword to, to captivity to plundering and to utter shame as it is today but now for a brief moment favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery for we are slaves yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant some to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair his ruin, and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Uh, end of the chapter. We have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have re requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant as it is, shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for you have been left, for we have been left an escaped remnant, as it is to this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. So Ezra, after the people have returned, a small, very small portion of the people have returned to the land, Ezra is told not long after that there are some people that are returning again to idolatry. They're intermarrying with people and their hearts are being drawn away again into idolatry. And Ezra's like, what in the world? Like we have just experienced exile. We have just gone through all of this judgment of God because of idolatry. And yet you are about to enter into the same exact sin again. It says he's appalled. He tears his clothes, he tears his beard, and he just sits there appalled until the night. Like he, he is in shock over their sin. And then he cries out to God, and he's like, Oh God, we can't even stand before you. Our guilt's up above our heads here. Like we have experienced so much sin. Like we are choosing to go our own way, even after you've been so gracious to us. It says, you didn't even punish us as much as we deserve because you've allowed a remnant to return to the land. And yet we're about to turn and enter back into that same exact sin that you punished us for once again. I mean, he's absolutely appalled. And he ends by saying, we can't even stand before you. Our guilt is so great. I mean, he is broken over their sin like hardly anybody else we see in Scripture. He is just absolutely shocked, appalled, and broken. 
and he leads the nation in repentance. And the crazy thing is, if you look in verse 10, the people actually follow in his model of repentance. They all come around him, and they all start weeping with him. The whole nation repents, and they wind up giving up those people that they were intermarrying with, and they repent and turn back to God. It's an amazing thing that he was able to lead the nation in repentance in that way, and in a lot of ways act as a mediator between the people and God, crying out to God on behalf of the people. And ultimately, these mediatorial figures, the, this role as a mediator between God and man in repentance, is fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament, and we see that Christ is the one that enables us to repent. Uh, it talks about that in the book of Acts, and we're going to get there in the New Testament. But the other side of this is that this, the, the person that mediates on behalf of the people, and sometimes it's Moses, sometimes it's a prophet, sometimes it's a priest, sometimes it's even a king, um, but in every instance, it's somebody that's been placed in leadership over the people. And when they're confronted with the sin of the people that they're over, they're broken over that sin, even if they themselves aren't necessarily the ones that have committed that sin. They're broken over it, and they are the ones that lead the people in repentance. And I can't help but think that if we're going to apply this Old Testament model of repentance, that whether God's entrusted us as fathers leading the family or husbands leading wives or teachers or elders or deacons or pastors, that we as leaders are the ones that ought to be modeling this kind of repentance and be the ones that are leading our people and saying, oh God, we are so overwhelmed by our guilt that we can't even stand. It's up above our heads. All we can do is cry out to you and hope that you will be merciful, even though you will be just in judging us. So... I encourage you in whatever position God has you in to lead in that model of repentance. Um, we're kind of short on time, so homework for this week, if you want to look, like all these elements that we talked about, you can really see clearly in Psalm 51, and you can see really clearly in 2 Kings chapter 22 through 23 with uh, Josiah. We talked a little bit about those too, so if you want to do a little bit more reading this week and just like read through those stories and try to pick out the different elements that we've talked about. Um, so just to kind of summarize what, where we've been tonight and reiterate some of this stuff, repentance is most essentially and fundamentally the complete interchange of the heart. You can never fake that aspect of it. That's something that is divinely enabled comes from God. God's the one that circumcises your heart is the language that Deuteronomy 30 uses. Yet you're still responsible, according to Deuteronomy 10, you're the one that is responsible to circumcise your heart. We'll look at that next week. But you can never fake that internal change of the heart. That internal change always will come with certain external elements. And those are some of the things we looked at tonight, such as praying or crying out or confessing to God your sinfulness. Always comes with that always comes with some sort of ceasing of sin. It might not be complete, and it might not be permanent, but there will be a pattern of continuing in a repentant lifestyle that starts with repentance, and as you continue to hate sin, you will, you will continue to purge that from your life, and in the few instances where you do relapse, the repentant heart will be broken over those instances of sin. I mean, that's what differentiates this from like a workspace thing, right? Somebody goes through an AA program, they're sober, they've done it, they've ceased that sin. They, they slip up once, all that goes away. Like all the days that they've been sober, all that starts over. Like they've, they've, they've ruined it. They, they can no longer claim that they've successfully gone through that program. With us, our repentance isn't ruined if we stumble once. Like we're, we're not perfect. Repentance is not a perfect heart. It's not perfectionism but it is broken in a penitential heart. So that's the difference. Um, we, our repentance isn't ruined by a sin or an instance of sin, but we will be broken over that and repent and continue to remove that from our lives continually over the course of our lives. Um, and then there's certain things that we talked about, like fasting. A lot of times you'll see fasting in the Old Testament. You'll see weeping, public confession of sin. All these things are great things, and these are things that we really ought to do 
and really ought to pray to God that he would move us to a point where we weep over our sin or want to fast over our sin. But I don't want to leave these things on you as if, oh my goodness, I've never repented in my life because I haven't confessed these things publicly or I haven't repented of this sin because I didn't fast over it. Like that's not the point here. It's great and it's a blessing when we're moved to the point of brokenness over our sin that these things come, but they aren't the things that will always be there. Um, So I pray that they are. I pray that we're people that, as we mature in the faith, get to a point where these things are always part of our brokenness over sin. But I just wanted to encourage you with that. Don't think that you haven't repented if, you know, you didn't stand out here on Sunday and and confess it to everybody or something like that. Um, But certainly there is a place for that. I pray that that it, God would move us to that point. Uh, this is where we'll stop tonight. I just wanted to end with this passage. This is an excellent passage summarizing where we've been tonight. Joel is talking about judgment of God, a future day, the day of the Lord, and he's, he's going through all this, and then he's saying, look, this day of judgment's coming, yet even now there's time repent. He's saying, return to the Lord with all your heart. So he starts with that internal aspect. That's the foundational aspect of repentance. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. Okay, so that is the essence of repentance. And then he says that will come, it's coming with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So he's saying all these things are going to come with it, external things. But Joel is super quick to say, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Because he knows as soon as he creates a little list right here of fasting, weeping, mourning, you're going to get people that say, okay, okay, good deal. All I've got to do is fast, weep, mourn, and then God's going to be gracious to me. Three things, three easy steps, three things I can make a checklist on to gain favor with God and be, be a recipient of God's grace. That's how we work. That's how our minds operate. That's what we want to do so that we can say, look, I fasted, I wept, I mourned, therefore I'm good to go. Joel's super quick to say, no, if your heart is not in it, if your heart is not the thing that's being torn up over your sin, that's absolutely worthless. You can fake fasting, you can fake weeping, you can fake mourning all day long, but if it doesn't start with the heart, it doesn't mean anything. So that's why Joel is super quick to say, rend your hearts and not your garments. The people were so guilty of getting to this point where they would tear up their clothes, they would sprinkle ashes, and do all these things, dress in sackcloth as if they were repentant or if they were going to obligate God to give them grace. And God's like, I'm not fooled. There's no way that I'm going to show you grace unless you return to me with your heart. That's the thing I'm concerned about. Um, and then Joel uh, ends this call of repentance by reminding the people of the character of God. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Uh, And so, I mean, that's the same for us. Like, we ought to be a people who are continually returning to God because of God's character, because God's faithfulness to His character and His steadfast love towards us. Um, So those are the elements of repentance. And uh, next week we're going to be looking at a couple instances of people who failed to repent, even though they sought to repent to some extent. So, um, Rob, do you mind closing us with a word of prayer?